Hello and welcome to Broadway Videos this week on Broadway for Sunday, December 17th, 2017. My name is James Marino and in the broadcast today we have Michael Portantier and Jan Simpson. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. Also with us is Jan Simpson. Jan is the director of the Arts and Culture Journalism Program at Cooney's Graduate School of Journalism, also writes for TDF Stages, American Theater, and has her own blog at Broadway and Me. Jan is also the host of Stagecraft, a Broadway radio podcast. And Jan, has your first episode of Theater Talk gone out yet? Yes, it did. It did. Um, we talked to um, Ayat Akhtar. Uh, uh, about junk, and we talked to uh, some of the women involved in the play 20th Century Blues that is on at the West Side Theater. So Theater Talk can be found at uh, many PBS stations around the country, uh, and we'll put a link in the show notes to Theater Talk as well. Um, Jane, of course, you're taking on the role of the snarky Michael Riedel role, right? Oh, yes. Those <laughs> shoes are too big to fill. Much too big to fill. With us this morning, we have a very special guest. Haley Mills is joining us by telephone. Fans around the world will know this Academy Award winner, a Golden Globe winner, a BAFTA Award winner, and a Theater World Award winner for uh, Noel Coward's Suite in Two Keys. So, Haley, thank you for getting up on a Sunday morning and chatting with us. We really appreciate it. Oh, that is my pleasure, Michael. <laughs> oh, so we have uh, coming up soon, I, I guess it starts in January, you have a new production over at City Center. So why don't you tell us about uh, Party Face? Party Face. Party Face is a very, very special play. It is uh, written by a really, really clever, talented writer, actress, um, a woman called Isabel Machen. Uh, it is an Irish play, as you would probably guess by her name. And it's, uh, the director is Amanda Bierce, uh, who you will know from Married with Children, and many, many other things as well. And uh, there are, the cast is five women, uh, which... I'm really, really looking forward to, actually, uh, to, to have such a very uh, female-centered um, uh, production. It's a comedy. It's Irish. Uh, it's set in a place called Carrick Mines, just outside Dublin. Mm. Uh, and uh, there are at least two... Genuine Irish girls in the production. <laughs> uh, Gina Costigan and Brenda Meany. Mm. Uh, both Irish girls and both with, um, you know, both from theatrical families. I'm really looking forward to it. It's, it's a very, very good play. It's very well written. It, and it's got lots of depth to it, you know. It, it's, uh, the best comedy uh, is... It's usually comedy that's based on real-life stuff, you know, the deep stuff. Um, and, and that's what this play does, you know. It, it, it reveals their lives eventually over the, the course of the, the play. Who these Could you tell us a little really bit are. about 
your character? Um, I play Carmel, uh, the mother of two of the girls. And uh, I've come to my younger daughter's house to organize a party for her. And, um, you know, I've brought all the food and I want everything to be perfect and to look perfect. Uh, And it is a struggle to hang on to this image of perfection, this facade that everything is absolutely all right, (laughs) Uh, when actually it's, you know, they're, they're kind of, they're all standing on a, you know, on a lake with the ice cracking underneath them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Carmel, my character, is the last person to accept that this is happening. Um, and uh, it doesn't sound very funny, but it is. <laughs> <laughs> I know that the play has been very successful in Ireland already, uh, apparently yeah. under a, a different title, Boom, question yes. mark. Can you? Right. T- can you talk about you? Are you aware of uh, the reason for the title change? Uh, I believe uh, B- B- boom really w- related to the the great the financial boom in Ireland. Uh, oh, I see. And this was this was some years ago. Was this about fifteen years ago? Uh, Twenty years ago, and uh, you know there was suddenly. Uh, a, a tremendous economic upswing, and uh, so I think that, that, that it relate the characters, uh, particularly uh, my character, and yes, I think both my daughters actually um, benefited from this boom in the economy, oh. and although they have all the trappings of success affluence, uh, you know, the reality of their lives underneath doesn't match up to the, (laughs) uh, you know, outer appearances. Um, So that boom wouldn't be really relevant to uh, an American or, uh, you know, specifically to a New York audience. And and yet the subject... The subject matter sounds uh, like a lot of Americans and New Yorkers will be able yes, to. Yes, of course, <laughs> but not the title. I mean, it is specific to the. Um, I think, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, our producers, um, uh, Robert Dramer and Morgan Sills, and Amanda, they have all decided that you know it it, it should be changed. And Isabel Mann came up with party face, which I think is very uh, appetite, very good. So, Haley, you have had an, uh, an extraordinarily uh, large body of work that spans 60 years in film, television, and theater uh, during this monumental time when entertainment is changing so much. What are the big changes that you have seen in, in your experience? Um, well, definitely the business, uh, the film business has become a lot more corporate. Uh, you know, everybody, everybody recognizes that. Um, my experience was, I was so fortunate 
that my my early years were spent working for Walt Disney and for him personally and in his studios, which were small and friendly and everybody knew everybody. Everyone knew everybody's first name. You know, and Walt used to wander around the lot and greet everybody and he knew everybody's first name. That that uh, everything has just got so much bigger now and uh, there is such an incredible amount of that awful word everyone uses product <laughs> uh, and uh, and i think that you know I, I i'm afraid that some of the um product has has become just that and it 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 uh, you know i don't know the personal element um uh isn't always there and sometimes too many people are involved in the creation of a you know a film or or a television which is art um you know let's face it and i think you can have too many cooks um all stirring madly the one pot uh and and i believe that you know it, it uh it should be the vision of the writer, the director, the you know, the producers, the team that creates something, and and the theatre still has that, um, and everyone involved in in a production. It, it's it's lovely, you know. Off Broadway, we have a, a, a smaller team, uh, and. You get to know everybody, and everybody is focused on the main thing. You're not having to deal with remote, anonymous executives on the phone uh, who've made sort of um, collective decisions. It's uh, it, it's a it's a it's a creative endeavour that involves you know just a handful of people, and that's really that's lovely. That that's what. Mm you know, what we all love, really. When you went out uh, to film Pollyanna um, uh, out at Disney, did you uproot your life? Did your parents come with you? Did you go by yourself? Did you have a guardian? How how did that work for you? Uh, My parents came with me when I was doing Pollyanna. My mother stayed with me. Um, uh, My father, he came for a little bit, but he went off because he, you know, as an actor, he was, he was constantly sure. working. Yeah. So, you know, my poor mom, she had to, <laughs> she was torn between me and my dad. Uh, and, of course, my sister Juliet, when I was doing Pollyanna, my sister Juliet was, um, she was working in the theater in New York. Um, so, you know, she was only 18 at the time. And, and so, you know, my mum had to dash around all over the place and it wasn't quite so quick and easy <laughs> then as it is now. But luckily, she was a writer, so uh, she was able to to carry on writing. She had been an actress, but when she fell in love with my dad, she and it was in the war, um, and that that's the Second World War, in case anyone's wondering. Um, <laughs> 
she decided, she decided, you know, life was much too precarious, and uh, she gave up acting to stay with my father, and that was that. You know, she was she was a writer from then on, and quite a successful writer. Um, I did a couple of, I made a couple of films based on her stories. Um, so, so that's that's how that worked. And of course, um, I didn't stay there. I didn't move to California, okay. even though I had um, after I did Pollyanna, I I signed a contract with Walt Disney. Um, for five years. Uh, so altogether, I made six movies for him. Um, but I always went back home. That was one of the prerequisites of the contract. Um, California uh, in the 60s. It, 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 it's a very... Yeah. <laughs> could be a, a shock to anybody who visited, especially the Los Angeles area in the 60s. Yeah, oh, it was wonderful. <laughs> it was just absolutely wonderful. And the contrast between... London in the 60s, you know, early 60s, and Los Angeles in the early, you know, London was still dealing with the, 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 the aftermath of the war. You know, uh, there wasn't much color in the world. Everything was gray and black and brown and, you know, um, uh, and the, the, the effect of rationing was actually still felt and and everyone was very, very careful about not wasting food and mm. turning the lights off and don't let the water run when you're doing your teeth. And all those kind of things went out the window in Los Angeles. <laughs> which, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Every television in every room and the lights were all burning and the food, the vastness of the food. We used to order one steak between my, the three of us, that's my mom and my brother and myself, because when they... Because the, the, they were so enormous and covered the whole plate, and we divided me three. Um, uh, that's why I think you know we're all rather stunted as a family. I hasten to add, not as a as a nation. Um, so it was uh, a very, very, very exciting. You experience. mentioned you mentioned your sister Juliet was in New York. Um... Uh, doing shows. Was there any sibling rivalry between the two of you? No, there wasn't, actually. The, the, the thing is that Juliet had actually started acting. Uh, you know, she, she started, the first thing she ever did, she was six months old, three months old, I think. She was the baby in the basket in a film that my father did called um, In Which We Serve, which was directed by Noel Coward. And then she did uh, a couple of films with my father when she was five, and then another one when she was seven. And then she didn't do anything after that and grew up normally. Um, then she did uh, Alice Through the Looking Glass when she was 15 in London in the theatre. And then when she was 17, instead of going to drama school, as she and everyone had, had planned, um, she did an audition and got the part in Peter Schaffer's play, uh, Five Finger Exercise. So she never went to drama school. She did Five Finger Exercise, and she was in London with the play for a year, and then the play went, I should say, came to New York, and she was here for a year. So the need for drama school kind of dwindled. Um, 
because, you know, there's nothing like practical experience to learn your craft. Um, hmm. And two years in that play with Jessica Tandy and Roland Culver when it was in New York. Um, and she was making her name in the theater. I had done a movie when I was 12, and she was already doing Five Finger Exercise in London. And I did this movie called Tiger Bay with my dad, and it was a good movie. And it got, you know, it got good reviews and nice things were said about everybody. Um, and then I went back to school and forgot about it. And it all happened sort of slowly. And then I met Disney. And then I did Pollyanna the following year. And Juliet has always been hugely supportive and encouraging and just wonderful, wonderful oh, about my whatever I was doing. And... Um, she went to see that first movie I did called Tiger Bay about six times. <laughs> and um, I, I, I think she had to, she had to, she had to see what it was I was doing and decided it was all right. And she was proud of me. And I've always felt ever since that she was proud of me. Uh, the two of As you. I am very proud of her. Yes. The, the two of you did um, Legends, the James Kirkwood play. Um, yes. I read that, that that you toured with it. I'm interested in 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 that experience, and if you've worked together at other times, what the experience has been. Well, Legends was was um, uh, frankly a bit of a debacle because although it was, it's <laughs> it always comedy, is. It wasn't really very funny. Um, but the other play we've done together is um, was a play called Fallen Angels by Noel Coward. And that was funny. That was very, very funny. And we did that in England, and then we took it on tour, and we did it in the Antipodes. And we were we were with that play for 14 months. And we had such a good time. It was wonderful. She's a very, very good comedian. And, uh, and one of the people who makes me laugh most in my life, apart from my father, who was extremely funny also. Uh, so, yes, it was, a, it was a really good experience. Um, and um, I don't know. Uh, you know, I think there's a time and a place for plays. And, and I don't... You know, it wasn't the right moment for, for, for us and legends, quite honestly. But we had a great time doing it in Australia because we love working together. You have such extensive stage credits. The I know that you did the 90s production of The King and I all over the U.S. I am so sorry I missed it. I almost caught you in Boston and then it didn't all work. All right. Uh, then let's see, An Evening of Alan Bennett at the New York Public Library in 2002. I assume that was a, a one-nighter? Yes, yes. And then uh, Vagina Monologues at the West Side Theater in 2000. And, uh, and Suite in Two Keys at the Lortel also in 2000. But we don't get you on stage in New York very often, so we're just so happy to have you back. I'm very happy to be back. I have been 
uh, I used to live here about, uh, well, five years ago. Um, my partner is, um, he, he's a New Yorker. Um, and, uh, but I always had a place in London. And then uh, I've also got grandchildren. When my grandchildren started to arrive, I realized it was time for me to go home. And um, uh, so I'm very, very, very thrilled to, to be back here. And I love this city. And, and I arrived a couple of days ago, and, and it was snowing, and it was just perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I know you probably New York as you go, oh, my God, no, not snow. <laughs> but I loved it. It was perfect. But New York in the snow is just, it's such a wonderful contrast, isn't it? This great, big, <laughs> dirty city, suddenly covered in snow like a bride. Uh, <laughs> I absolutely love it. And went up to the park and, and walked around. And um, I'm, I'm thrilled to be back here. And thrilled to be doing this wonderful play, which I haven't even started rehearsals yet. We start tomorrow, so I'm I'm getting very kind of like, you know, geared up, um, eating my oats and drinking my Guinness. And uh, <laughs> no, 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 I'm I'm kidding. But uh, it's it's great. It's 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 fun, and um, and there's some very 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 talented people involved, and I know we're going to have a wonderful time. Well, Helly, thank you so much for joining us on a Sunday morning to talk with us on Broadway Radio about Party Face, which begins performances on January 11th, 2018, which is just around the corner. You start rehearsals tomorrow. It's going to be up at City Center on uh, 131 West 55th Street, and so we'll have a link to everything in the show notes. Helly, thank you so much again, and we'll be speaking with you soon. Have a wonderful day. (laughs) All right. All right. Well, thank you very much. It was very nice talking to you and all of you. Okay, so the uh, three of us got a chance to see uh, Steve Martin's new play, Meteor Shower, with uh, Amy Schumer, Keegan-Michael Key, Laura Benanti, and Jeremy Shamos. And uh, let me start off with this one by saying that I have this as my big go-to must-get-tickets referral for everybody because I thought it was hysterical. It was so strange, <laughs> and I think that we'll get to the strangeness in, in a bit, um, but uh, I, I was really, really stunned uh, about how much I enjoyed this, uh, that the individual performances were just, I can't think of how the, this just a four-person play, I don't think that they could have cast any of these roles with anybody better. It seems as though that to, to me it was just absolutely perfect, and a bit over the top. And I have some friends who are uh, who are uh, theater aficionados who eh, kind of were men's and men's on it. But uh, you know, 
this is a limited run, and I'm telling everybody to get tickets uh, to it. Um, the story is about two couples that get together, uh, and <laughs> and uh, over you know with the excuse of there's a meteor shower happening, and and one of the couples came from uh, another part of uh, another part of town to to see this better. Uh, and it seems as though that this uh, couple has had a uh, a reputation. Um, this is the Keegan Michael Key and Laura Benanti couple uh, that has had a uh, reputation of causing havoc. Um, and so, and it plays off in three, maybe four different scenarios where you see it restart from the beginning and and have different outcomes. Uh, I really enjoyed this. I thought it was a great evening. It's only 80 minutes, a no intermission. Uh, and uh, it was very, very funny. So, uh, Jan, what did you think about this? I wasn't as high on it as you are. Um, it is fun. There's no there's no doubt about that. There's uh, I laughed. Um, my husband, who's pretty hard to please um in terms of theater he laughed and enjoyed it um but i i wasn't really sure what steve martin was 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 after here and i i wondered if the couple that uh, Key, uh, Keegan Michael Key and and Laura Bonanti play were supposed to be like maybe the uh, id of uh, the mm-hmm. characters that Amy Schumer and uh, Jerry uh, 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 Jeremy Shamos play, and so this was actually all happening uh, in their heads. And I and I also wondered if um, I'm a big big Jerry Zachs fan, but I wondered if another director might have just helped some of us in the audience see a little more clearly what Steve Martin was uh, was trying to say uh, uh, with, this, with this show. But as you said, it's 80 minutes. It's great fun. I, I thought they were all quite good. I thought, and I was particularly impressed by um, Amy Schumer, who I, I'd never seen on stage, and she seemed to me quite comfortable. I read some things where people thought she was a little bit stiff, a little mugging. I didn't find that. I thought she was um, uh, uh, really comfortable. And of course, I mean, Laura Benanti is just, you know, a treasure. So. Um, Whenever I got a little bit off, um, she would bounce on and say something, and I'd be right back in it. So, so I I had fun. Michael, what about you? Well, I certainly agree that there were a lot of laughs. Although I have to say, the night I went, um, uh, the theater was extremely cold, oh. uh, and it was what it was. I think that first really bitterly cold night of the week and. What was annoying was that when the show first started, I felt fine. And then about 20 minutes in or a half hour in, I noticed it seemed like air conditioning coming down on me. And I had to really basically put my coat on. And I noticed uh, some people around me doing the same if they could. Um, 
And I know there's a theory that uh, comedy uh, works better when, when uh, with a cooler temperature, but I think there's a limit to that. And uh, I was not very happy with that. I think if you're uncomfortable, you laugh less. So I didn't enjoy it as much as I would have if I hadn't been so cold. Uh, no to the house staff. Uh, by the time, as I say, it happened about 20 minutes in, so it was – I guess I could have gotten up from my seat and walked to the back and tried to find someone and complain, but I thought that would have been more disruptive than anything. Um, so I hope if uh, those of you who attend don't have that that experience. I uh, was equally impressed with Amy Schumer. Uh, I know very little of her work, uh, but she seemed completely comfortable mm-hmm. on stage. I, I didn't think she was stiff at all. I thought her timing was e- expert, and she does have a lot of um, – Maybe not lately, but I, I believe she has a lot of stand-up experience, and that, that showed with her. Jeremy Shamos, um, who plays her husband, Norm, uh, is, of course, a, a honored stage veteran. He's done so many shows over the past several years, uh, often in, in somewhat similar roles. Um, he's great at playing uh, – sort of somewhat nerdy, befuddled guys, uh, mm-hmm. but with a tremendous comis, comic in, instinct. And I was glad to see him in it. I uh, remembered and I looked it up that he was a replacement in this yeah. role. Yeah, it was, suppo- it was supposed to have been Alan Tudyk. And that happened early on. I'm not sure if they had even begun rehearsals or um, – uh, certainly Alan, Alan Tudyk didn't do any performances, but I wonder what happened with that. Uh, and Laura Benanti. I, I think they said creative differences. Oh, okay. Thank you. Um, yeah. 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 That sounds familiar. So at least that's honest, you know, mm-hmm. uh, not scheduling difficulties. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you mean. <laughs> Laura Benanti, we know uh, as a primarily as a musical theater actress, but she has demonstrated her, ability to be hilarious on stage many times before and so that stood her in good stead um the only one uh who who seemed uh not quite at the same level to me was keegan michael key i thought uh he was certainly very amusing and he got all of his laughs as well but i can't quite explain this it seemed to me that he was uh acting it more as a stand-up comedian than as a character actor uh and so i don't know if that's just something i was completely reading into it um no i agree i agree he was a little off a little Mm. too big um yes and and seemed to be commenting on the character more than living it and uh make no mistake lots of very odd things happen uh, in this play, it's not realistic in any way. And uh, Jan said something earlier, which at the ver- at the very end, you do get a tip off as to maybe explain why incredibly strange things are occurring at every moment. Uh, and so, in retrospect, I think the, the, this uh, <laughs> this play makes more sense than while it's happening. Uh, uh, while it is happening, I think it's meant to keep you off guard constantly. Uh, and so the reason for that becomes, uh, I, I guess, clear in the last few moments of the play, um, in, in case you're wondering while it's happening, 
what the hell is going on. <laughs> uh, hold on till the end, and and then uh, w- whether the explanation is too pat or not, uh, I that's up to you. But there there is a sort of reason for <laughs> for everything. Um, I think that the audience is probably getting exactly what they came for, and it's not uh, my ideal type of comedy. But I don't think that any i i i really doubt that anyone who's coming to see a very funny play by steve martin with amy schumer and lots of other great people in it i don't think any of those people are going to be disappointed no i i totally agree with you there so uh yeah i i meteor shower uh is playing uh, a limited run they are playing through january 21st um so we you only have uh about a month or so to go see it um i think that if they played uh through the award season i think that they would get lots of awards i don't know if they're going to be able to um be recognized during award season uh without mm. the show running yeah um, lots of nominations anyway yeah Exactly. Uh, so I, I could see Amy Schumer, and, and all of them, in fact, getting some sort of nomination. I don't know what category each one of them would fit into, uh, if it would be leading or supporting in the in a play. But uh, certainly Steve Martin, I think, would get a Best Play nomination. We'll have to see in Jerry Zach's possibly a, uh, a Best Direction. Uh, but... <laughs> It, it it really is over the top, and uh, I, I I I can't say enough about it. But I don't think that many folks are going to get to see it because of this short thing. And I think that's due to a lot of scheduling. I don't think that that's uh, creative differences. No, <laughs> that, 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 no, that's these actually are scheduling. really busy people. Yeah, really busy people. <laughs> All right. So next up, Jan, why don't you tell us about uh, the new Broadway show, The Children? The Children is um, an import uh, from uh, Britain. It's a play um, written, I believe the, I should have this right here. I believe the author is Lucy Kirkwood, a young uh, a British uh, playwright. And uh, it's particularly, well, I'll get to that in a sec. It's uh, a three-person play uh, starring Francesca Annis, Ron Cook, and Deborah Finley. It's directed by James McDonald. Uh, it's about uh, a couple. They are retired nuclear physicists. And they live in a remote part of England uh, near a power plant where they once worked. And there has been uh, a, a, a breach at the power plant. It has affected the neighborhood in the sense of natural disaster. This is obviously not a natural disaster, but the way natural disasters have uh, affected communities, uh, food is limited, electricity is down, um, and but they, they they are fine. They are are making it in their little cottage where they live. But as the play opens, they are visited by an old friend, someone they worked with at the uh, power p- plant 
who has just sort of mysteriously appeared. They haven't seen her in something like 30, 35 years. And she just appears at their um, uh, a doorstep. And we know that uh, there must be a reason for her visit. Uh, as the play begins to unfold, we think we know the reason uh, for the visit, but there's a switch uh, sort of in the middle of the play, and it's not what we think. She's come to ask them something very different. And I, I'm being purposely vague because I, I, I think that's part of the journey of the play that you will want to take. However, I will say that this play fits into a number of plays that I've seen over the past decade, I would say, that are written by playwrights in their 30s uh, and early 40s, maybe late 20s to early 40s, and so are the children of the baby boom generation. And th these playwrights are, I don't know how else to say it, they are really pissed off at us baby boomers. They are just really angry and they really want to bring us to account. And so the power plant is the, the, the driving force in, in this play, but it's also a metaphor, I think, for how... Uh, the older generation has messed up the world and left this mess to uh, our collective children to deal with. And this play is wrestling or attempting to wrestle with responsibility and obligation uh, for this, this, this mess, be it the concrete power plant that these three people have built or helped to build and, and help to operate before their retirements or the larger society, um, be it, you know, what's going on in, in, in England right now with Brexit or what's going on here um, uh, with the Trump administration. It's, uh, I think, a very well acted uh, a, a performed uh, play, all three actors at the top of their game. Um, but it, uh, well, it made me, I would love to sit down with, with one of those playwrights and, and, and really talk about this uh, intergenerational, it's a, it's a quiet sort of, war going on, but this intergenerational war um, from their point of view. So do you ever have an opportunity to sit down with playwrights and talk about their plays? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> yes, okay. I do. Is this foreshadowing? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I haven't had uh, a chance yet to uh, talk to Lucy Kirkwood. I don't know if she's here. I don't know if, if she's available. But it's a uh, it's a very uh, it's a it's a it's a thought provoking uh, uh, play. A very serious piece of work. But also, as with I think all good uh, 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 dramas, there's um, 
there's some levity, there's some comedy uh, involved uh, as well to balance it out. So it's not a grim experience by, by any means. All right. So uh, we will stay tuned to your other show, Jan, to make sure that we catch anything that you might have further with the children. Michael, um, you got a chance to see Farinelli and the King with uh, Mark Rylance. So tell us about Farinelli. This is the Shakespeare's Globe production of Farinelli and the King, which is a new play by Claire Van Campen. And it represents her playwriting debut and a very, very successful one, I'm I would say. Uh, Claire Van Kampen is primarily known as a composer, and she is also the spouse of Mark Rylance, who plays King Philippe V of Spain in the play. But uh, any uh, fears you might have about uh, nepotism or whatever that's called when it's the spouse involved, (laughs) Uh, because uh, Mark Rylance is quite a very, very well-respected, uh, one might almost say towering figure in the theater, uh, has been for quite some years, uh, including a directorship, artistic directorship of Shakespeare's Globe uh, for, for quite a few years. Um, and he has been hailed in his Broadway appearances and awarded. And uh, so I guess he, the muscle of the couple in that sense, but... Um, the quality of this play, I would say, is excellent and is not uh, – I, I would like to think it would have been produced even if it wasn't for that connection. Um, it is about the relationship between Philippe and the Castrato Farinelli, uh, and the action is set in the, uh, the, the first part of the 18th century, the early the mid early to mid 1700s, um, and uh, in case some of our listeners don't know what a castrato was, this is a many would say a barbaric practice that used to take place where pre-adolescent boys who had beautiful singing voices would be castrated um, so that their voices would not change uh, and they would continue to sing in that very high soprano-y register even as they passed through adolescence. Um, But the theory was that um, they would do this with the physiognomy physiognomy of a male rather than a woman. And it, the sound that therefore that was created was very different from a soprano or from a, uh, from a, an adult male singing in falsetto. Uh, anyway, this used to be done uh, <laughs> uh, in Italy and perhaps elsewhere, but it, it eventually was outlawed for obvious reasons. And, um, we can't know what that sounded like unless I suppose someone uh, nowadays – I wonder if that has happened at all in, in recent decades where someone needed to be castrated for medical reasons and then went up, wound up being a singer. I, I'm, I don't know of any incident of that, but uh, I'll have to look into it. Um, the king was apparently what we would now – classify or uh, diagnose as bipolar. He had lots of mental issues uh, and very strange behavior because of it. And what is uh, presented in this play, which apparently is a great deal of it is historically accurate, is that um, Philippe's wife, Isabella, uh, 
brings Farinelli to the, the Spanish court uh, because he is so famous and he, it's a kind of a coup to bring him there. But he, it turns out that his beautiful singing uh, has a, a very, very healthful effect on the king's state of mind uh, to the point where he really begins to cast off almost all, if not all, of his odd behavior and behave like a normal person. And there's much discussion of um, uh, of that kind of effect that, that's having here, a music therapy, we would call it nowadays. Um, and so this very, very close relationship develops between Philippe and Farinelli and also Isabella. Uh, Farinelli is acted by Sam Crane, but um, the several pieces of music in the play are sung by um, Yeston Davis is the uh, is the main person who sings the role of Farinelli. And then apparently uh, his alternate is James Hall, whom I believe does uh, matinees uh, on two show days. Uh, I am told that you can check the website uh, for the show, and uh, if if you want to see a particular person, or just so you'll know who who is singing. Also, as you go into the theater, there is a uh, the, uh, the board in the lobby, which which will tell you who is singing singing the role of Farinelli. And uh, all I did not hear James Hall, but all I can say is Yeston Davis. Uh, he did such a beautiful job that he almost changed my mind about countertenors because um, that's what that would be called nowadays a countertenor it's an adult male uh, you know who has not been castrated uh, but who sings in in that uh, well falsetto register um, many countertenors that I have heard over the years have always sounded too screechy to me and I never really saw the point of it uh, I, I've Never previously known a countertenor who sounded more beautiful to me than a soprano would singing the same music. But here, um, there was none of that screechiness, just beautiful, beautiful, lovely sound. And it really made you feel uh, how you could, uh, that you could understand how this would actually calm someone's mental state and clear up his mind. Um, so I think that. This uh, the playwright the playwriting even though it is Claire Van Campen's debut is very very skillful and the storytelling is clear the character relationships are completely clear um, Isabella I should say is played by Melody Grove and uh, and the growing relationship between her and Farinelli becomes. Um, an issue as well. There's this quite uh, interesting, one might say, triangle that uh, that comes to exist between the king and the queen and Farinelli. Um, the physical production, uh, as one might assume, is beautiful. This, this Shakespeare's Globe production in the Belasco Theater, which is the perfect theater for it, and also where um, not too many years ago, uh, we also saw the Shakespeare's Globe production of two Shakespeare plays, Twelfth Night and Richard III, uh, both of them featuring or starring Mark Rylance. Um, I think that the milieu is perfect for the play, and I just was so 
so impressed with the writing itself. I, I expected, of course, to be bowled over by Mark Rylance because he's been so brilliant in everything. But the remainder of the cast and the physical production and the storytelling and uh, the the story itself is so interesting. Uh, and all the more so because it is based so closely on real life events. There's a wonderful insert that you will find in your playbill with notes by David Cody, uh, really kind of detailing what what is re- what actually happened, what, what didn't. Uh, it tells you what was the castrato sound, who was Farinelli, does music therapy actually work, uh, was Philippe V really this unhinged, uh, and how much court intrigue swirled around him. So you can, uh, this is one of those cases where you can do research before or after if you choose. Uh, into the actual lives of Farinelli and Philippe and Isabella. Uh, either way, I think that you will find this play extremely enjoyable. And the uh, the live music uh, played, uh, sung live and played live on stage, really adds to it. It's 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 as if you're getting two entertainments for the price of one. Um, uh, here's an interesting note. Um, I think m- many of the arias will be unfamiliar to lots of listeners, but there is one that um, that many may know. Uh, it's a song called La Shakiopianga, and it is included on Barbara Streisand's classical Barbara album. <laughs> so uh, I was kind of looking around when that aria started to see if I uh, if I noticed signs of recognition on the faces of people in the audience, because uh, I think that's going to happen uh, for probably for that aria more than anything else. I highly recommend this play, and I'm so glad that I got to see it. Privilege to see Mark it sounds sort of like um, the the madness of King George um, the Third meets the King's Speech. <laughs> That's I. That is an excellent description. Oh, thank you. I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, is, is it is it one or two acts? It's two acts, but uh, it's not very long. And it, they they do create uh, the impression, as they did with the two Shakespeare plays, that it's candlelit. There are, uh, 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 well, well, I guess, what do you call it? like hanging chandeliers that are that are candles? I, I, I guess it wouldn't be candelabra, but there are those. There are some of those, and the lighting, the actual lighting. Uh, that is used in addition to that is quite dim. I, I will say uh, this might be a case where if you were seated way far back uh, in the theater, that might be something of an issue in terms of um, facial expressions. But I wasn't s- seated there, so I can't really tell you. Um, it's uh, if it, if there is any amplification, it's very, very, very minor, and just uh, the whole feeling of naturalness and and of theater of another time. That's actually absolutely perfect for this kind of story. Uh, the costumes are gorgeous. Uh, everything is just beautiful. So uh, Farinelli and the King is over at the Belasco. It is uh, playing through March 25th. So again, not playing through the um, award season. And uh, went, went, right when Rylance was cast in this, or the announcement was made that R- Rylance was going to be doing it, uh, Matt Tamanini and I spoke about it on Today on Broadway. And uh, Matt immediately said, I just can't wait for, for Rylance's speech. 
So uh, <laughs> on, the, on the Tony Awards. So, <laughs> so we'll have to see about that. All right. Uh, Jan, you got over to Classic Stage Company to see the Fiasco Theater's 12th night. Um, so I was a bit confused about this. Is this a rental or is this a Classic Stage production? It's listed as a classic stage production of the Fiasco Theatre Company's Twelfth Night. So I, I don't know what the relationship is uh, between the two, um, but it is not a rental. It is part of it's part of the CSE stage. I, I'm just going to get right to it and say I was disappointed. I was really excited about seeing this. Because, first off, Twelfth Night it is, I think, the first Shakespeare I ever saw. And it remains my favorite comedy, and probably because it was the first um, uh, Shakespeare I saw. So I already had a love for the play. And the Fiasco Theatre Company, a few years ago, maybe just a couple of years ago, did a production of Into the Woods. And um, I went to see that and was so totally charmed by the way they did it, which was very small, very minimal, but very inventive of uh, uh, actors uh, creating props themselves, um, a lot of the sort of uh, imaginative uh, storytelling on stage, I mean, real uh, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm never sure of what the exact term is for that when uh, they are producing a play in, in, in such a way that the emphasis is on the storytelling itself. So I was looking forward to, to this production, and it seemed very non-fiasco, actually, uh, to me. It was a pretty straightforward production of, uh, of Twelfth Night, but the part of the fiasco aesthetic that they brought to it was that they didn't do it in period dress. They were um, wearing sweaters and uh, the sort of indescribable time period clothes where it could be hipsters in Brooklyn today or people from the 1930s. You're not really quite sure. Um, and, and, and so it just sort of fell in the middle. It wasn't, uh, it didn't have their exuberance that they usually have. And it didn't have the traditional, uh, uh, over the topness that sometimes Twelfth Night can have, particularly with the characters of Malvolio and Sir Toby Belch and Andrew Agachak and um, and and uh, Festin the Clown, these are highly comedic uh, roles, and there weren't a lot of laughs, and it was a very uneven. Uh, uh, a cast. Some of them were quite accomplished, and some of them 
almost appeared to be uh, interns. There was one guy who seemed just so delighted that he was getting through his lines that he kept looking at the audience and smiling like, got it, right? Uh, it was a real hodgepodge of, uh, of a performance, and um, I was really disappointed. All right. So, I know. Uh, <laughs> I know. What can I say? I would love someone else to see it and, and I'd, uh, on the show, and I would love to hear what you uh, guys uh, thought of it. I think it's been getting sort of middling uh, responses from, uh, from other critics as well, but I, I'd be particularly interested in what you guys thought. All right, so we'll see uh, next week when Peter returns if um, if he has seen it. Michael, do you have this on your schedule? No, I uh, I wasn't able to schedule it. It does sound to me different than the other fiasco shows that I have seen. So yeah. uh, I uh, that's that's a, that's some very interesting remark uh, there, Jan. I'm going to have to see if I can check it out. Yeah. Okay, so that is down to Classic Stage Company uh, through January 6th. Um, uh, the reason that I asked if it was a rental or, mm-hmm. uh, or a Classic Stage, because it didn't seem like John Doyle had any input into this production, according to their website. Uh, and I, that's why I thought it was just so strange that, you know, John Doyle took over the... Uh, I know. Uh, uh, the role of um, which artistic director at Classic Stage Company last year or so, and it's yeah. strange to bring in such a major production and him not to have input in. Well, well maybe he see- liked it because the actors play their own instruments. Oh. And they <laughs> and they sing. I don't know. Maybe he had an affinity for it for that reason. But speaking of. Speaking of John Doyle, I'm sorry I neglected to mention that John Doyle directed Farinelli and the King. So I guess he's been- really <laughs> yes. Well, obviously, he's busy then. That's that's <laughs> makes more sense to me now. That puts all the pieces together. <laughs> uh, really? Yeah. Did he? But did also, he, did he also direct it when it was in London? Oh, uh, I'm or sorry. Or is this I, a new production? Um, I'm sorry, I did not look that up. Uh, I don't know. But uh, also, I think Fiasco, I mean, they have their own artistic staff, and I think they kind of do it themselves. Uh, I'm I'm not surprised that that he would not be the director of Twelfth Night. No, not maybe not the director, but at least, you know, oversee the production in some way. Um, But it's strange for classic stage company who's – mission is to do you know classic plays to outsource that you know in some way <laughs> so. yeah but we are seeing a lot of uh, a lot of the institutional theaters if that's the word for them and the nonprofits. uh it seems to me we're seeing even more of them importing uh, or or bringing in productions intact that have been elsewhere. Um, hmm. I mean, that's that's mm-hmm. true. Roundabout uh, did that with the uh, Into the Woods, you know. Roundabout has several this season, and and right. and the, isn't the children the children right from the yeah. National? Yep, yeah. yep, 
Yeah. And the next thing they're doing at CSC is Fire and Air, the Terrence McNally play about the Ballet Russe. Oh, yes. Um, and that is directed by John Doyle, but it's not a classic. It's a new play. So they're, I think they're under his direction – perhaps his artistic direction, changing their focus a little bit. So I looked it up. Uh, John Doyle did direct Farinelli in London. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ah, it's a good gig if you can get it. Get to London, <laughs> direct a show in the West End, hang out. That's all, that's all good stuff. All right. So um, before... Before we wrap up today, I want to remind everybody that you could subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayVideo.com. There's a subscribe link, th- link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. One of the ways is the Stitcher app, which is an application for your iPhone, your BlackBerry, Android device, uh, and get a stream directly to you. iHeartRadio plays us. Uh, Google Play has us. TuneIn plays us. Anywhere that you can f- listen to find our podcast, you can find Broadway Radio. Uh, and contact information for Jan, for Michael, and for me can be found at BroadwayRadio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. Now, normally, we'd have a trivia answer and question here, but I couldn't get my schedule together with Peter this week in order to uh, pre-record that. So all of you who skipped to the end just to do trivia, we got you this <laughs> week. <laughs> so next week, we'll have an answer to last week's trivia and a new question as well. So on behalf of Jan Simpson and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Videos This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.